Hi, everybody. It's, uh, it's such a, it's a good uh, feeling I have when I come amongst you any time, but it's, it's just such a special uh, occasion for me because it's my first time with you since you started your new service in the afternoon. Um, uh, some of you don't know about that. Yeah, there's an afternoon service <laughs> in Liberty as well. Um, and uh, it's, it's just it's extraordinary to see the, the way that you guys continue to make progress for the gospel, reaching out to the city, serving Jesus and uh, the people of Amsterdam. What a joy. What, what, what a story of God's blessing and what um, an example you are. You are inspiring us. Um, inspiring me back in the UK and many of our other brothers and sisters who are seeking to serve God in other parts of the world. Uh, you don't know how much you're inspiring them, but you really are. I, I'm talking about you in different places and, and people's eyes just opened up and their heads go back when they say, Re really, are they making that kind of progress? Um, so I, I just want to say well done, well done. This is exciting, this is an exciting church with which to be involved, and uh, I, I love being around you. Um, it's it's uh, another short visit for me, um, staying this weekend with Simon and Lottie Pask, and uh, that's, that's a joy. They're actually from the church initially that I'm in, in Brighton in the UK, but this is the first time I've got to spend a bit of time with their kids, just a little bit, um, which is very edifying. Um, <laughs> For me, I, I, just in the car on the way here, I was having Romans 8 expounded to me by their, their oldest. Um, it's a passage of the Bible that's uh, very important, lots of key verses in Romans chapter 8, and it's good to have them carefully explained by an a, a, eight-year-old. Uh, he, he knows more about the Bible than some of the leaders in my church, which is kind of, kind of scary and worrying, but very impressive and encouraging, and certainly good for my soul. So uh, yeah, you guys are doing a good job with your children's work, it's fantastic. Okay, so while, we're, while they're doing proper Bible study downstairs, we're gonna, or wherever they are, we're going to do some uh, of our own in here. If you have your Bible, perhaps you tell me the, the book of Matthew, first book of the New Testament, very easy to find, and chapter 8, and we will read verses 23 to 27, um, and then we will uh, pray and get into what it has to say to us today. Uh, it says this, And when Jesus got into the boat... His disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O oh, you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? Let's just pray together. Father, we are so grateful for your goodness to us. Lord, that you've opened our eyes to see something of the glory of your son, Jesus. And yet we still want to see more, just as we've been singing. We want to see you as the awesome one you are. So speak to us today. Lord, pull the veil further back. Give us a greater glimpse of you and work within us, bringing transformation 
and love for you and trust in you and obedience to you. And I pray that for every single one of us here. Just before we finish praying, perhaps you would pray for yourself and say, Lord, please speak to me. Maybe you're not used to praying. Perhaps you're new to praying. Just, just, just say in your heart, God, if you're there, please speak to me. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So you have these uh, boat-worthy uh, people, people who know about boats, know about sailing in this story. There's a few fishermen in the crew. There's guys who know Galilee. They know the lake that they're on. It gets called a sea in the book of Matthew. Luke calls it a, a lake because Luke knows about seas. He's, a, he's been to the Mediterranean. He knows a bit. He's been seeing bigger water, but it's still a very big lake. And these guys are used to seeing it as, okay, it's a big deal, Lake Galilee. And, uh, and also, it's got its own kind of microclimate. It's, uh, I don't know anything about it, or at least every time I try and understand it, I get more confused. So I'm no meteorologist, but I, I know that the, 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 the Sea of Galilee has become famous for its squalls, as they're called, these kind of storms that can come quite suddenly and wrecks, going back to the time of Jesus, archaeologists have found all kinds of wrecks of fishing boats. And so these kinds of things happened and they would be fatal. Presumably these sailors would have known of you know, colleagues, acquaintances who, who would have died at sea. And so for these men in this story, this is a, a, real, uh, a real worry. And, and yet in the situation, they call out for the help of a carpenter. They find themselves asking for the guy who doesn't live on the water, the guy who lives on the land, the guy who works in a, in a workshop. That's Jesus' world. He's not from around here. He's from, he's from yeah, a bit inland, in Nazareth, and good with his hands, but not, not with, with boats. And yet it comes to the point where they say, help us, to the, to the carpenter. And maybe there there's a tiny parable for all of us, actually. The point in our lives where we start to reach out to Jesus is usually the point when we're the most desperate. It's the time when you think, I never would have thought I'd ask him for help. Never thought I'd turn to Jesus. Some of you, maybe you're here for the first time. When I just said, why don't you pray? Maybe you're not used to praying and you found yourself saying, listen, it's hard enough for me to be in this room. I don't know if I'm ready to start talking to Jesus. Because it's, it's so often the bottom on our list. It's the, the, last, the last resort. We try everything. You know, I, I, I want to get through. I need, I need this. I need that. You know, we will venture down various avenues of self-help, medication, relationships, forms of security. Whatever we might find that, that builds a gap between us and the, and the, the, the danger or the panic, the struggle. And, and these things, when they fail we're pushed to other resorts and finally we reach the bottom of the list and it's Jesus. Oh boy, I never thought this would happen. Okay, Jesus help me. Maybe you've been in that situation. Maybe that's how you became a Christian. Maybe that's why you're here because you're actually going through something like that in your life and it's forced you to church. But it's interesting reading the, the gospels, the stories, in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these, these accounts of Jesus' public career, how he seems to deliberately take people 
who follow him into situations of desperation. He, he, seems to, he seems to make this a priority. See, the, it says, these are the people that followed him into a boat. You can't, he's just a fishing boat. You can't get crowds on a boat. You can get a handful of people, maybe a dozen. He had 12 disciples, maybe it was the 12. He'd been with crowds before this. The bit, if you read the paragraph before, he's with crowds, he's with maybe hundreds, maybe thousands. Often, thousands followed him. He was teaching the crowds, preaching, healing, doing miracles, people coming to watch. It's fascinating. It was a, 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 an extraordinary viral wave of fascination with Jesus. It was huge. Just instant retweets everywhere. Went absolutely everywhere. And, and so the crowds were following him in that sense, like, like Twitter followers, like we follow things today. You click on, I'm following, okay, I'm, I'm subscribed. Okay, I'll take your podcast, I'll follow you. Don't, I don't wanna miss out, I'm, I'm scared of missing out. I'll, I'll stay on, I'll, I'll keep following, I'll keep it on my feed. I'll just keep an eye on what you're doing. Not these guys. They're saying, no, we will follow, follow. We'll get in a boat with you. We'll go where you're going. We don't know quite what to expect, but we'll come with you. We'll come with you. And what does Jesus do? I mean, you'd think there'd be a reward, right, for that? You guys, you're taking me seriously. Okay, let's go, let's go, let's go for a cruise. Let's go for a nice pleasure cruise. Well, let's at least go for a, a holiday. Let's go somewhere we can put our feet up. Let's relax. Let me just, let's, let's, let's enjoy ourselves. Let's kick back. You're the followers. You get a reward. Well done you. You're the followers. Easy life for followers. No, here, oh, I've got some followers. Followers, excellent. I know where to go with you guys. Let's go into the eye of the storm. What does Jesus do with people who take him seriously? You might think if I follow Jesus, I get an escape clause when it comes to the troubles in life. No, following Jesus means you're more likely to get a fast track to the troubles in life. He says, all right, okay, let's go. Let me take you where you need to go. We're going to go into the storm. I'm going to take you into a storm. Jesus does this, he, and he does it more than once in, in different ways. He, he presents his disciples, his keenest followers, with circumstances that, that squeeze them that caused them to realize all kinds of things. Why? Because he is so good at training. That's what he is to the 12. He's a master. He's a master trainer. He's a teacher. They call him teacher from time to time. Rabbi. It's a good name. He knows how to teach. He knows how to train. Listen, if you follow Jesus, I promise you difficulty. I also promise you the difficulty is totally under control. And it's, it's the, under the control of someone who knows you perfectly and knows how to train you. He, he knows how to help you because he has a plan for your life and his plan for your life is better than the one that you have. And, and he will work with you to get you there. He'll take you seriously. He's that kind, he's that good. 
might not seem good, but I promise you. And that's what we're looking at as we go through this story. So I want us to just see very simply three things that will help us to see how he trains. First of all, there's the danger. So that's the first item uh, I want us to highlight. The very real danger. We've already talked about the, the Galilean circumstance, the, the geography. Serious storms. I mean, probably 30 feet waves, I don't know, enough to make these, you know, these sea-hardy men, these guys who know the sea, terrified. So it must have been quite a storm. Waves that went over the, the boat, just, oh wow, this is horrifying. It's the very sort of thing I, I never wanted to see. Maybe you've been in a situation similar, maybe you've you wondered if you were gonna last the flight on one or two occasions, or gonna last the night out, or last the voyage. You know what it's like to genuinely worry for your life. Got a boatload of men trembling with that kind of fear. And not just the physical danger, but there's a spiritual dimension that we just need to kind of click into. So just go with me on this. For these first century uh, Jews, they, they would have had a whole, a whole understanding of, of raging waters that belong to their kind of Hebrew heritage and their, their love for the Old Testament, the scriptures that. that they associate it with chaos. They associate it with judgment. They associate it even with evil. At the very beginning, God creates the world and it says that the, his, his spirit was over the waters. It's as though it's like the, God is dealing with the, the, the chaos of matter, of matter without form, bringing structure to it. Because just raging waters speak of chaos. And then later, as you get through the story of the Bible, you get places where God actually brings judgment on whole armies, like in the book of Exodus. A whole of, the whole of Pharaoh's army goes under the water as God uses it to, to bring destruction. And so to be at the mercy of a storm was to feel the fear, not just of, of the, the elements, the fear of H2O, but the fear of spiritual power as well. And the sense of going away into the waters was, well, maybe you know the story of Jonah in the Old Testament, went away from the presence of the Lord and went out into the waters, out into the sea, and then was thrown overboard into the depths of the sea, into the storm. The idea being dangerous waters are, there's a, a sense of evil, there's a tone of evil about it. So these men are not just feeling like this is physically dangerous, but they're feeling like the forces of darkness are kind of ganging up around the boat. Real danger. And then secondly, the disillusionment. The disillusionment. Because up till now, what they've noticed is that Jesus is more than equal, it seems, to most challenges. And this is one of the reasons they're in the boat. They've noticed he's, he's powerful. He's worth following. He is. He's, he's definitely one of the Avengers. He's got stuff. You know, he's got some kind of power. I mean, it's fascinating. You, know, what, you don't quite know what powers he's going to suddenly show next. You know, he, he has authority. When he speaks to the crowds, it says at the end of Matthew chapter 7, he speaks like no one ever spoke. He speaks like someone with authority. And then when, when uh, a centurion, an enemy soldier comes to him 
and says, my servant needs healing, Jesus has authority to heal him without even going near him. The centurion says, no, you just say the word. Because you've got authority. When a leper comes up to Jesus, Jesus isn't, you know, most people would freak out and run the other way in this culture. Jesus, Jesus walks over to him and touches him. You're not supposed to touch a leper. You, you become unclean, diseased, you'd probably die. No, not Jesus. Jesus, in fact, heals the leper. The leper comes good. Every, everywhere he goes, he just seems to, he just seems to over, overcome the problem. Sickness, opposition, crowds, nothing seems to beat him. He's just, he's got authority until now. You've maybe seen those films where uh, like a, a kind of loser in a, in, a, in a sport or a losing team just kind of has some crazy idea of winning a tournament and they just go through the stages and they qualify and then they get into round one and they just qualify and they get to round two and they get finally, you know, it's these kind of movies. And, and they kind of go through the stages, the various kind of foes that they have to defeat. And usually the foe in the last, <laughs> in the final, is, is not just the best in the world, but some, for some reason in the film, they're always evil as well. <laughs> so the protagonist has to kind of, you know, has to sort of overcome not just the best tennis player or the best, you know, but they're, some, they're kind of cruel to children as well. And, and so, and, and so you're even more rooting for the underdog. And the whole film is about, you know, this winner, you know, this who comes from nowhere and wins. And we love those stories. Even, when, you know, in real life when they occasionally happen, they're kind of spectacular. And Jesus has been this kind of nobody from Nazareth. And he's kind of beating all comers. He's just going up this amazing progression of, of successes until a real, a real enemy. We thought, we thought we could follow him. We thought he was powerful. Oh, but we hadn't factored in storms. <laughs> you, can't, you can't control this. You can't defeat this. In fact, not only does he seem at the crucial moment insufficient, but he's asleep. <laughs> so their, their sense of danger is added to with a sense of disillusionment. He's, he is, he's worse than a disappointment. He's asleep. He's asleep. How could he be asleep? We're perishing. It's interesting though that, like I say, Jesus deliberately takes his disciples into these kinds of situations. He, he, he does it again and again. And in fact, he's, this isn't even the climactic version because there's a time coming when they won't be saying, Master, we're perishing. But they'll be saying, you're perishing. You're not supposed to perish. They'll watch him get taken away and put, put on a false trial and sent down for execution and mocked, stripped naked, beaten up and taken away and crucified. And they'll, they'll watch him get left hanging until he dies. And all that time they'll be waiting. He's going to get rescued. He's going to get rescued. Something's got to happen. We, we've, we've seen too much. He's got to, but he doesn't. He gets put in a tomb. He's asleep in the fullest sense of the word. Wake up! 
He can't be. He's buried. He's, he's without life. You can't rouse him. He's gone. It seems like these moments of crisis, Jesus is using to prepare them. He's trying to teach them something. Say, you guys, you've got to learn. You're going to go through some bewildering things. You're going to go through some dark nights. You're going to go through some Good Fridays and Easter Saturdays where it's like, this, this isn't supposed to happen. I, I didn't expect this when I said, I'll follow you. Where are you? Why, why are you? why are you asleep? Why are you dead? Following Jesus will, will involve times where you're at least tempted to deep disillusionment. And there's a, there's a certain voice that disillusionment takes on. You know, Proverbs says that hope deferred makes the heart sick. In, in Mark's gospel, it doesn't just say, we're perishing. It says, don't you care? You ever prayed like that? That's, that's the voice of an honest disciple, right? Don't you care? That's what disillusionment sounds like. Jesus, don't you care? You, don't you care about what I'm going through? Haven't you seen how hard it is for me right now? You ever prayed like that? I've prayed like that. Actually, it seems that there's a, not even a stroke of difference, perhaps, between don't you care and the accusation you don't care. It stops being a question after a while, doesn't it, sometimes? It starts being an assumption. You just, you, I assume you just don't care. You're not interested. You, 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 at the point where I thought you would come through for me, at the point where I needed you the most, at the point where you're supposed to show up on a white horse and deliver me, at the time I really expected Jesus, Jesus was asleep wasn't interested. Why do we hit these points of disillusionment? Why does it feel like this sometimes? I'm sure some of us would say, I've been let down a lot in my life. That's why. I'm sure some of us could give a lot of stories of how we've had people let us down, betray us, maybe disappoint us badly, mistreat us, and we just got used to it. Some of us, we've got used to it. Maybe we could, some of us, give a, just a catalogue of stories. It would make our hearts break. Don't you hear stories sometimes? Like recently, just hearing the story of one man's life in my church, just some of the stories he told me, I just couldn't believe that all this could happen to one man. Couldn't believe it. And you hear that and you think, oh God, no wonder you're disillusioned. No wonder you're tempted to distrust. No wonder you feel like God doesn't care about you. But I've got to tell you, the Bible suggests a deeper reason. Honestly, even deeper than the very valid reasons you might have for struggling with distrust, the Bible gives another reason. Another reason that comes first. See, the Bible teaches us our story, teaches us our human story from the beginning. It teaches us what, what it means to be human. It teaches us how we were made and what's gone wrong. And what it says is, is that at the very point of our 
catastrophe, the very thing that we did that brought us into darkness, brought us into the world we have where there's sickness and death and suffering and injustice and all the other things we toil under. At the heart of it was a decision to assume the worst of God. At the heart of it was believing rather in the lie that God was against us. Even when there was absolutely zero evidence of that. See, the Bible says that we chose distrust in paradise. When nothing had been done, not a single thing had been done to give us any sense that God meant anything for us but our absolute good. There was nothing about the Garden of Eden to even give the trace of suspicion that God had it in for us. Nothing, nothing. Everything was generous provision and love. And yet we instead took on the lie. He, he doesn't want our best. He doesn't want my best. So you've got to understand, friends, whoever you are, whatever your story, whether you've had people let you down, or, like others amongst us, you've had a relatively affluent, comfortable life. Whichever of those two categories or somewhere in the middle, wherever you stand, we all stand together in humanity as those who, within the depths of our hearts, exists a deep distrust of God, a deep distrust of his motives, a, a, a suspicion that either he's not powerful enough or he's not wise enough or worst of all, he doesn't care. He doesn't really love us. This is, this is the heart of our problem. This is the depth of our problem. This is the disillusionment that triggers so many other problems that we've got. And it's because of this that we see what seems to me in this story to be a really strange response from the master. So that's what I want to look at as the, the, the final thing, the third thing, the master's response in this situation. We've seen the danger, we've seen the disillusionment, now we see the master's response. And it is, it's kind of peculiar, and I'm, I was going through this recently, and I've, I've never noticed this before. Because the way Jesus deals with this is, is kind of counterintuitive, it's, it's not what we'd expect. It says, Matthew makes the point, they're saying, save us, Lord, we're perishing. Then verse uh, 26, and he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea. Then, now check carefully, that's, that's what the original version of this verse says. The word then is there. And I've looked at Mark and Luke, and they tell the story in a different order, but they don't have a chronological word in there. They don't have the word then. So they, just, they say that, that Jesus rebuked the storm and told them off. Matthew says the order in which it happened, and he specifies that he starts with the rebuke, which is peculiar. Because most of us who are sane in a crisis situation would think when there is a crisis of these sort of circumstances, waves that are higher than the sail, 
likelihood of drowning, that the urgent priority is not a little TED talk on fear. That's what Jesus does. Isn't that strange? It's a bit like, you know, if, if my house is on fire and I, I call up the fire services and, my house is on fire. Can you send, please, send help? I don't expect them to say, well, we'll send help, but first, can we just talk about you and your attitude in this situation? <laughs> I mean, you sound very emotional about the whole thing. And I, I wonder, do, do you feel that your emotions are warranted at this point? I wonder if you have thought about, the, consider the, 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 the sense of distrust in us that that suggests. Your inability to, to, to have confidence in the, in the services that we provide. I know it's your taxpayer's money, but we are here and we've done a good job. And so Jesus, though, he seems to think, that's, yeah, that's, we'll do it in that order. Why are you afraid? You know, I, I'm sure the disciples are thinking, yeah, 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 you can tell us off, but can you do it later? You know, sometimes my, my, my kids that, in the morning when it's time to go to school, just occasionally there's, there's some kind of misdemeanor and I have to correct one of them or two of them. And uh, I, I, you know, I don't always get it right, but even, even, even I have to sometimes sort of take them into another room and say, okay, let's talk about this. And from time to time, the response I get from the, the kids if I'm trying to kind of correct behavior will be, we can't do this now, I'm gonna be late for school. Suddenly they really care about punctuality. And I'm, I'm like, you can blame me when you get to school. In fact, I'll call the school if I need to. School's fine. This is more important. Jesus is doing that. He's saying, I, 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 get, I get it, storm. Yeah, okay, okay, I get, yeah, I get it. Trust me, this is more important. Jesus is more struck by the storm in his disciples than he is by the storm outside the boat. That's, that's the priority for him. You guys, you guys, this is wrong. That, that's just water. Trust me, I can deal with that. You though, you're taking me years. I can deal with a storm, as you'll see in a moment, but you disciples, you people, you followers, you sons of Adam. It's taking me years to teach you this. So his priorities are utterly different and this, this is a massive clue, isn't it? Because he sees the problem differently. The storm, the storm, the storm. Aren't we like this? The problem, the problem, the problem, my, my boss. My, my team, my customers, my deadlines, my invoices, my bills, my mortgage, my salary, my wife, my husband, my mum and dad, my kids. That's the problem. They're the problem. Sort the problem out. It's what you're for, isn't it? So you sort the leper out and the centurion's servant. Why not me? Sort my problem out. That's the problem. Sort my problem out. My health. Don't you see the problem? Jesus has a habit of saying, look again. <laughs> I see a different problem. 
I'm, I'm telling you, I, I see a different problem. And I love you too much to leave it where it is. We're going to talk about you now. He's determined to train them. He's going to train them. They're going to change the world, the men in this boat. They're going to go all over the Mediterranean and the Roman Empire. They're going to get in endless trouble. They're going to get thrown in prison. They're going to get beaten up. They're going to get slandered. Jesus is saying, I've got to train you guys. You've got to learn some things. He says the same to you. If you follow Jesus, brother, sister, he's going to train you because he wants you to help him change the world. He wants you to, to, to do things in this time, in this generation, that will require some training. He also wants to prepare you for eternity. He wants to make you like him, not like our old Adam. He wants to change us each, to free us from our disillusionment. And so he, he does it with the rebuke, but then he does it, and I love this, he does it with his, the biggest treat he could give them. So he's such a good teacher. He doesn't just rebuke them. He, he, he trains them effectively by giving them trauma treatment. He, have you read this? He kind of does. It's kind of scary as well in a different way. It's kind of savage, actually, what he does. Says, you know, they're greatly afraid. They woke him, saying, Jesus, we're perishing. And he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. A great calm. Bear in mind, that's the same word for the storm. A great storm, enough to make you panic, and then a great calm. I wonder what a great calm is. Especially, I mean, in Mark's gospel, it says immediately. And here it says, they were marveling. They marveled. And again, in the other gospels, it says they were greatly afraid. In fact, the fear is greater after the calm than it was in the storm. Jesus heals them from their disillusionment with him and their fear of the storm by making them <laughs> frightened of him. If you, if you go through scary storms, you need a scarier God. Jesus is healing them by saying, just watch, just watch. And he says to the storm, he's like, like, a, like an enthusiastic pet, the, the storm. Shh, Sit. And it's, it's a great calm, a great calm. I mean, seriously, like just like glass, like the, the wind stops and the waves. Listen, until you understand that this was terrifying, you haven't understood this story. You must get this. The, the calm was more frightening. He was showing them that he is to be feared. He's showing them who he is. And no wonder they say, who is this man? Who, who does that? Who, they were overwhelmed, I'm sure, right up until their deathbeds. Right up until, not, you know, whether they died in their beds, I don't know. But these men, they carried this to their deaths. They were scarred by it. It shocked and amazed them. They saw the glory of God, and it was healing for them. They understood again his majesty, his greatness. 
That's what you need. That's why we sing what we sing. We need to see his, he's awesome. We, we need to so badly. We need to see how great he is. We need to understand that he holds it under his control at all times, all times. Listen, when he told the storm to be quiet, that wasn't the first time the storm obeyed him that day. It says in Hebrews chapter one that he holds, he holds the universe together by the word of his power. And Paul says in Colossians, he holds all things together. In him, all things are held together. In other words, the storm was being obedient to Jesus before they even got in the boat. Up until the time when he says, shh. He's saying, in a way we can't understand, he's saying, storm, carry on. Storm, be a storm. And then storm, shh. Everything, at every time, is under his utter control. That might cause other questions. <laughs> might make us think, really, everything? Yeah, everything. And it's a difficult thing sometimes for us to get our heads around. But friends, Jesus is trying to teach this very point. We must get our heads around it. We must accept it because the sovereignty of God is healing to you. When you know in your soul, he's got the whole world in his hands. Everything, everything that looks out of control in my life is not out of control. It simply isn't. Not one piece of it, not one atom, not one subatomic particle. He's in complete control. I must be persuaded. Be still, my soul. I've got to be persuaded. I've got to be sure. He's in control. This is how he serves us and helps us and heals us and prepares us and trains us. So he, he's, he's teaching them something about his control and he's, he's inviting them into the same kind of lifestyle. He does that for you and me as well, right? He sees the way we tremble. He sees our anxieties. He sees them, our daily anxieties. You wake up worried, right, some of you? If you wake up at all, if you slept. Life is just one long worry for some of us. Constant anxiety, constant anxiety. I've got to, if I can't control the world, who can? If I don't know the future, the future is an enemy. No, it's not true. I don't know the future, but I know who holds the future. I really get to do that, I get to know him. Jesus, Jesus, <laughs> they think it's so strange that Jesus is asleep, he thinks it's so strange that they're not. Why would you not rest? Why would you not rest? He teaches us to rest. That's what he promised us. Come to me, I'll give you rest. The Lord is my shepherd. He makes me lie down. How does he get to be like this? How is Jesus like this? You ever seen kids traveling? Maybe you've been on a boat with a family or on a plane with a family with young children. And young children can be noisy on planes. I've seen that. But they can also be staggeringly quiet still in the times when everyone else is going crazy. When the adults are panicking, you get, sometimes a two-year-old is just, just absolutely, just miles away, dreaming of, I don't know, marshmallows, I don't know. Just miles away, sleeping. Why? Why kids like that? I think it's because they just instinctively think that mum and dad control everything. Little kids, they just think, yeah, my mum and dad, worse luck, they're in control of everything. <laughs> so at least I can sleep. At least I can sleep, because mum and dad are in control. This is why it says in, in Psalm 4, in peace 
I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. You alone. Not you plus circumstances going right. You plus the wind in the right direction. You plus me putting in a really good day's work. You plus me making all the right phone calls and emails. Plus, plus me just covering all the tracks and everyone liking me and everything being good. But you are important in there as well. No, no, you alone. You alone. And, and honestly, this is the point. Persuasion about this is healing. Being able to join Jesus in his trust of his father. If a kid can fall asleep in a, in a bumpy car ride, because mum and dad are here, Jesus, my dad, <laughs> he's in control of everything. I know him. I can trust him. We're going to come to the communion table in just a moment and celebrate this goodness of God that we see in Jesus and uh, to do that, what we'll do is, is uh, you know the drill better than I do, I'm a guest today, but I just wanted to share one thing with you as we do that. So, so perhaps we could just prepare ourselves. If you're a, if you're a believer in Jesus and, you, and uh, you're, you're part of a local church here or somewhere else, we just really welcome you to come to the table when you're ready and take bread and wine. If you're not yet a believer in Jesus and you'd like to take communion, we would like to pray with you first and explain to you what it means to do that. So don't take it until you, you know Jesus and you have that personal faith in him. But otherwise, we're just so glad you're here. Please just sit this part out. But I'm gonna just um, lead us into it in a moment. In fact, let's, let's just pray now. Perhaps we should close our eyes or let me, just, let me help you to prepare yourselves. And the musicians might come and join me as I just lead into prayer. See, there's just the thing that strikes me is that, this is that when it says storm in this story, it's, it's the word that Matthew uses only twice in his whole book. He uses it here, and he uses it in chapter 27 when he's talking about when the, the world shook, the ground shook, and the sky went dark when Jesus was crucified. Seismos, it's like a quake quake, the ground opening up. Jesus was going to go into the worst storm. That's what the cross was about. Jesus dealt with the storm himself. And his authority over storms in our lives and his ability to bring us safely through them, safely, loved, cared for, cherished, protected, like a child, like a child in a, in, a, in a car seat, on a bassinet, in a cradle, in the mother's arms. His ability to cradle us, it comes from his willingness to undergo the, the worst storm. Jesus went right through into. Jesus took it for us. So we take bread and wine and we say to ourselves, Jesus, you're with me in the storm. You really are. And you're for me and you love me. And you're patient with me. And you put up with all my bleatings and my worries and anxieties, of which there are so many. He still forms us. We'll carry on getting it wrong and being worried and 
having little tantrums. We, we like that. But isn't he patient? He's so patient. So come to the table when you're ready and, and celebrate his patience with you and his grace towards you. Tell him that you trust him. Tell him that you see him for who he is. You're going to refuse the lie of the serpent. My God is good. My God is wise. My God is mighty. I trust him. He's my God. I trust him.